How's everybody going today? My name is Christian Wagner and I'm the Militant Thomas. So I know the description says that Swan Sona is supposed to be on here, but we had a tragic, tragic error. I told him that it would be at 710 because uh, my wife is a little bit late on uh, getting dinner, but he's in a different time zone. So he thought I meant 710 his time, not 710 Eastern Standard Time. So I'll just, I guess, do a Q&A to celebrate a thousand subs. Uh, and I'm thinking uh, if you guys would, if you guys would like that for, so sending questions while I pontificate briefly for a thousand subs, maybe I'll actually do one apologetic video against Protestantism. Maybe, maybe just to celebrate a thousand subs because I I never do one. I only do one defending Catholicism. I never do one attacking Protestantism. So I think that would be I'm thinking either uh, sacrifice of the mass, proving that from scripture, or maybe um, maybe faith and works. So uh, let me know which one you would prefer. So uh, let me let me see if there are any questions oh no he said he's taking a nap so uh he's gonna be out for a while i'm assuming at least so at eight o'clock i'll be on settler's lament and we'll be uh we will be going over stuff about newman and conversion and all that stuff you know how it is <gasps> is he awake Oh, he's awake. Okay. So, so Swan's awake. We have been saved. So he said he'll be on in like five minutes. So I guess we just gotta, gotta kill the time. So what do you guys think I should do for um, 1,000 subscribers? <laughs> oh, man. You guys all left. Wow. The one person out there that's watching me, very thank you. I don't know. StreamYard's kind of weird. Oh, look, it's back up to three. StreamYard's so weird. Like sometimes it'll it'll say I have like twenty people watching, and then like thirty seconds later, it'll jump down to like two people. So I don't know how accurate Streamyard actually is when it comes to that. Maybe it is accurate. Maybe you guys are very finicky. Who knows? And before Swan gets on, remember to uh, to buy Scotus's Ortonatio. Very important. You're cringe if you don't have. Uh, Scotus is Ortonatio. Look, both Byzantine Scotus and Michael Lofton are live streaming right now. Crazy. Okay. I guess while we wait for him, we can... Oh, there's stuff in the chat. That... Where is Swan? We want Swan. He's going to be on in like three minutes. He was taking a nap and accidentally... Well, it was actually kind of my fault, but uh, let's... Uh, what should I do? So there was 
There was um where is he? What the heck? Palestrina. So Pope Pius X said the best. Oh, thank you. The other one fell on the ground. If you can see the antlers somewhere. It's right. Right there. It just fell off my wall one day. Crazy. And I did shoot it. It was me, I promise. So Pope Pius X said that Palestrina had the best classical music when it came to mass. So I kind of want to kind of want to listen to that right now. So uh, I'm going to switch and share my screen while we wait for Swan. Okay, there you go. Let's see how good this guy is. Who's disliking this video? What a bunch of punks. Hey, Swan, there you are. Hey, Christian, how are you? Good to see you. Good to see you. How was your nap? Oh, it was quite delightful. Um, and then I woke up because my mom told me it was dinner time. And then I looked at my phone and then I saw your message and I said, oh, I got to do this. Okay, so we got like 45 minutes. So uh, let's get right into it. So Swan, give your give like a 25 second introduction because everybody already knows who you are. <laughs> well, yeah, my name is Swan Sona, philosophy student at Kansas State University. I run the podcast and YouTube channel Intellectual Conservatism. And, you know, I've done debates and I've done other appearances on other channels like the Militant Thomist. Yes. Yes. Are you a are you a Militant Thomist? Um, I mean, it depends on what you mean by militant, but I'm certainly a Thomist. Um, maybe I'd be like the friendly Thomist or something like that. <laughs> yeah. What's, what's his name? Uh, I had Father Gregory Pine on and I asked him the same question. He's like, it is not appropriate for us clergy to be militant. That is a layman's <laughs> job. <laughs> So I guess I guess uh, only I can be the militant Thomist. So uh, what I wanted to bring you on today to talk about is uh, when you were uh, briefly mentioning uh, your con- uh, your conversion story when I was on when your channel back a few months ago, you you mentioned that uh, conservatism was really huge for uh, your conversion. So would you uh, briefly uh, tell us about uh, how your conversion came about? And then kind of the, uh, after that, a little bit of um, intersection of, not intersectionality, but intersection between conservatism and Catholicism in your conversion. Yeah, well, that's a quite a big story, Christian. So I'll try to condense it as much as I can. Um, so when I was in high school, I was originally a democratic socialist and a liberal. Cringe. and you know the reason why was because all the conservatives that i knew were cringe and uh, i didn't hear any good philosophical arguments from them and when it came to like me and my liberal friends you know we thought that we were the smart ones and we were the enlightened ones that we knew better right and so um there came a night where one of my friends charles uh, messaged me and he said swan why are you pro-choice And I'm like, well, I mean, you know, the embryo is not a person, so it doesn't have consciousness, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then he went into all these other counterexamples that that principle would lead to. And then he and then I started realizing, huh, maybe like, you know, my stance on abortion and these pro-choice issues 
aren't as defensible as I thought they were. And then especially, you know, during my time, the big Supreme Court case of Burgerfeld v. Hodges came up. And I was really struggling to reconcile what I thought was pretty clear from Scripture, that marriage is the union of one man and one woman, versus what my liberal friends were telling me, what the Supreme Court was telling me, right? And so I started investigating deeply uh, into the question. And so, um, you know, and just to back up just a little bit, you know, I was raised in a Baptist home. And my parents, they try to stay out of politics as much as possible. So I was kind of left to figure out some of the stuff on my own. And my adopted grandfather, so since I grew up in the United States without my biological grandparents in India, my adopted grandfather, who was a very good Baptist man, um, you know, read the scriptures, every single note of his Bible had, uh, you know, uh, every page of his Bible had notes in it. Um, he always emphasized how even though he believed in the truth, he wanted to treat people in a way that was gracious. And as I began investigating the question, look, what is the nature of marriage? And I very much, you know, had friends in the LGBT community, uh, liberal friends who would be very deeply upset if I started advocating what I thought was the biblical position. Um, I asked myself at the end of the day, look, is this what the Bible teaches? Is this what Christ expects me to accept? And if that is the case, then Christ give me the strength to accept it, right? And help yeah. me to live in a way that is gracious. And so, you know, I started looking at the scriptures and I'm like, yeah, it's pretty clear. I think that marriage is this. But I was like, but why is it the union of one man and one woman? And then I started looking into, you know, philosophers like Robert George, Ryan Anderson, Sharif Gurgis. Um, they wrote a book called um, Marriage, Man, Woman, a Defense or something like that. And that book was cited by the Supreme Court, at least by the conservative justices, to articulate the rationale for defending the traditional view of marriage. And then I read, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas. I looked at Edward Fazer's arguments, like the perverted faculty argument. And I gradually became more and more convinced, okay, I don't think I can be liberal anymore, given how, where I land now on the social spectrum of things, you know. And uh, as time went on, um, I started entering kind of a spiritual wasteland because after I told my friends like, Hey, I'm conservative or, you know, I'd kind of pretend to be liberal and kind of poke at them and ask them, Hey, like, why are you pro-choice when, you know, if you accept do you like, do you really want to say that there are some human beings who are not persons? And some of them would be like, dang, I, I never thought about it that way. You know, it's like <laughs> basic things. Um, and eventually um, I, I came across the philosopher, Sir Roger Scruton and his, uh, video on a, a documentary at the BBC entitled Why Beauty Matters. And in this documentary, you know, Roger Scruton talks about the Western tradition of beauty. He kind of touches on the, the Catholic tradition, especially, and the value of that to like a conservative project. Mm -hmm. And so I started reading more into what is conservatism. And, you know, I became friends with Sir Roger Scruton, became email like pen pals. Um, I read Intellectuals and Society by Thomas Sowell, and I realized, okay, a lot of things just came together. Um, and I even, I even read the book, um, what is it, The Great Debate. It's like Edmund Burke, Thomas Paine, The Birth of Left and Right by Yuval Levin, which is also a great book that really articulated the conservative versus the modern liberal view of the human person. I mean, so that's just the snippet of how I became conservative. Okay, so when it when it comes to uh, conservatism, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm assuming you're not me meaning like Ben Shapiro, Charlie Kirk type meme, like uh, <laughs> like type conservative, like uh, what's a good example from a politician, like uh, uh, George Bush type conservatism. I'm assuming you mean uh, something much deeper, much more historic than that. So would you like to, uh, uh, before you go continue, to kind of define conservatism for us? Yeah, and that's a great question. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is that uh, typically with political ideologies, you can kind of isolate a basic narrative that all of them share, no matter what culture or context they're in. Right. So with Marxism, it's going to be the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie or something like that. Um, in the case of conservatism, uh, I think Robert Coons, when I had him on my channel, he said it best. He's a professor down at UT Austin. He said conservatism isn't an ideology. So it doesn't have this overarching story or narrative to it. Um, conservatism, you know, so Sir Roger Scruton in his book, How to Be a Conservative, he says, conservatism begins from the sentiment that all mature adults can understand, that beautiful things are easily destroyed, but not easily created. All right. Mm-hmm. So conservatism, I would say that one of the central doctrines of conservatism is what's known as the tragic vision. So the tragic vision is this idea that there are intrinsic or at least reliable human limitations. So for instance, you know, no human is infallible, you know, given without divine help, right? Yeah. So politicians, rulers, even people who have good intentions, they're going to make mistakes. Even people who are intelligent and experts, they're going to probably get things wrong and even get them drastically wrong. And so the tragic vision recognizes these human limitations and then says, how do we live in light of you know, these things? And so the conservative is not against change. The conservative is not against you know, advancing, whatever you mean by that. Uh, what they emphasize is this kind of spirit of caution and prudence, right? Um, another thesis that you can add into there, which has more meat to it, is perfectionism. So conservatives... Um, don't accept kind of the classical liberal view of government where the government's kind of morally neutral and tries to kind of balance everybody's rights together, right? Yeah. The, the conservative position is that, no, there is a conception of the good life and the government should be promoting it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, people talk about like, oh, you're legislating morality. Well, everybody legislates morality, right? Even, you know, in the Supreme Court, in Obergefell v. Hodges, it, 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 sent a, it sent a message to all of society that, hey, this is okay, right? And if you disagree, then you're a bigot and what have yeah. you, right? So law is a teacher. Uh, and so, you know, what what we should be ordered towards by a good society is virtue. And so the yeah. government can play a role. It shouldn't usurp the role of parents. And so a third thing you could probably add into conservatism is the principle of subsidiarity, where the lowest necessary rung of authority is the one that should be consulted. Right. So, for instance, not everything should always be taken up to the top. So let's say you have a a monarchy. Right. Um, Maybe not everything should be just shot. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe not everything should just be given right up to the king. Right. Because then the king's going to get exhausted. He might not make as many good decisions. You know, if he can delegate it to a lower official, to a duke or something like that, then great. You know, but it shouldn't all just be consolidated um, in one place all the time. Uh, and so, you know, these three principles can kind of give us um, an entrance into conservatism. Maybe the last point I should mention is tradition. And this is something that, like, conservatism is famous for. So, I mean, one one problem with 
using tradition is that everybody, to some extent, after they've implemented a policy or an idea that they like, they're going to be conservative about it. So even a liberal who imposes, let's say, a progressive tax, uh, income tax rate, um, they're going to conserve it by making sure you know that the, you know maybe the Supreme Court comes in and strikes down any law to the contrary, or um, they just defeat any law that is proposed in the House and the Senate. But um, what we mean by tradition here, we're talking about a particular kind of tradition, right? And um, I should also mention the logic of tradition. So. Um, take, for instance, the tradition that you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage mm-hmm. based. Uh, based. Yeah. This tradition, a lot of people think like, oh, it's just this old superstition that people have. I don't, I don't know why it's not. To... And then you look at later on, you know, you find out that there are studies actually supporting this particular way of life. You see the social consequences of, um, you know, extramarital relations or. Um, you know, having children out of wedlock and all these other things, or even the consequences of contraception, right? And um, you realize that what the tradition does is it's this kind of, well, one is that if this tradition is an enduring answer to a question, then what it does is that it allows the everyday person and the society in general, um, you know, because look, not everybody is going to be doing what we're doing, Christian, you know, like uh, studying advanced philosophy, nitpicking the natural law and all of its details. But if you have a tradition and a way of life in a community or just this common social practice um, that can be implemented, right, by, you know, social pressures and even, you know, shame can be used in a good way. Um, what it ends up doing is it allows like a common everyday person to have a higher probability of having correct beliefs even if they don't always understand the full justification for yeah. those beliefs. I see it in kind of your description of conservatism, I'm really liking it, but I kind of see a, a mixture of like sort of Aristotelian tome, uh, not Aristotelian Thomism, Aristotelian Platonism, sort of uh, like we, uh, not that Aristotelian and Platonism, I, at least I don't think are necessarily too much opposed, but that's my controversial opinion for the day. <laughs> but I, I, I totally, I, I absolutely see, um, an epistemology that, that that this is based off of, and also a very solid ontology that uh, the Augustinian idea of of there are certain forms which subsist in the mind of God that we have to pattern ourselves off of. Also, like Aristotle's political philosophy, that there's the common good and there's the individual good, and that we are seeking uh, both our natural and supernatural uh, goods through the uh, through through both uh, the civil government and the ecclesiastical government. And, and I definitely see a lot of these strands being, being brought together in, in, in what you're saying. So I'm really liking it. That's, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and when I think, when I think more about the kind of tradition that I'm trying to preserve, or at least, you know, and this kind of gets into my conversion to Catholicism, um, the more I looked into what exactly is the West trying to conserve or Western conservatives, I ended up realizing that ultimately it's just the Catholic tradition. It's just the yeah. Catholic church at bottom. Like once you remove all the fluff, like that's what it is at its core. Um, especially, you know, when you try to intellect this, this action of intellectually defending the faith and providing justification for social policy or what have you. Um, 
this well and even the idea of not being afraid to just say hey you know i think church and state should have a closer relationship mm-hmm. or not being afraid to be a perfectionist right and say that the, the the government should take a moral stance on issues and order the society towards virtue that in itself you know we it's a very aristotelian idea yeah. but it was also a very catholic idea it, it was you know part of the philosophy of christendom right mm-hmm. to order the whole society towards uh the the, ver- uh, the good life which involved, you know, the Catholic faith, the fullness of truth. But um, anyway, let me just let me get into my story then on our, uh, on how you know Catholic, uh, conservatism led me to Catholicism. Uh, so I think uh, you know the the kind of starting point for all of this was um, when I was in the second semester of my freshman year at Kansas State, and I took a class about the Reformation. And it concerned how the Reformation led to secularism. And that was the first time that I'd ever heard this idea. And I thought, like, okay, maybe this is just like a one off. And then I later learned that it's just the academic consensus that, yeah, the Reformation led to secularism. Um, And so, uh, you know, you know, and I started wondering, like, how did how did it do this? Right. How did it lead into secularism? Well, you know, there's some things to keep in mind. One is that Aristotle, even though there were Protestant scholastics, um, for the most part, what the Reformation had done, it had kind of castigated Aristotle to the side. And I yeah. remember reading, you know, Thomas Hobbes basically saying Aristotle's a tool for the Pope. And I'm like, geez, like, Based. you know, <laughs> like if, if we don't have Aristotelianism, then a lot mm-hmm. of our moral and social beliefs don't make a lot of sense. Or you end up getting a view of the human person that's atomistic and individualistic. Yeah. And the idea of the community doesn't really exist or the idea of the community isn't as robust right so you know um you know when you think about how aristotelians view holes in relation to their parts right like some the contemporary person is going to say that a whole is nothing but the sum of its parts whereas we would say as aristotelians that the whole is the unifying principle of all the parts yeah yeah. And and you even see this uh, a little bit in the Catholic Church, because it wasn't only the uh, Protestants after the Reformation era that kind of lost their way on the Aristotelian track. Mm-hmm. There was uh, have you ever read um, have you read a lot of uh, Pope uh, Leo the Thirteenth's encyclicals? Do very little. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, he's uh, he's pretty amazing on this. If you read uh, Attorney Patris, he mm-hmm. goes over this. But in basically in the 19th century, the, the Protestants, they they about for a century and a half, two centuries, like kept the Aristotelian line and, and, and guarded it. But I mean, once you allow um, you allow certain groups within your churches to deny that Aristotelian line, then it starts to uh, it's like gangrene that just spreads because the Roman church could just say, like, no, you got to agree with this, like suck it up, guys. Yeah. And then in the 19th century, what I was getting to is that uh, you had Catholic theologians and philosophers kind of follow, trying to be the cool kids on the block. And uh, and speak in the same categories as uh, a lot of these continental philosophers, and they they've lost their way. But what happened with the revival of the church under uh, under uh, Pope Leo the Thirteenth is you had the Leo Nine revival. So you had Saint Thomas's philosophy stamped, like him, mm-hmm. and then also uh, especially uh, Pope Saint Pius the Tenth. Both of them were like, okay, we are Thomists. That is the philosophy of the Roman Church. You philosophy professors, you have to teach this. This is the perennial philosophy of our church. And that led to a great revival 
So I think I think you do have something there when it comes to the keeping of Aristotle and then the keeping of of sanity and the keeping of um, of, of really a theological society. Right. And I mean, um, you know, uh, when we think about Aristotle, uh, one thing that he points out is that, you know, the, the idea of like building a state or building institutions of authority, um, you know, now nowadays, you know, people are like, I'm against organized religion um, or I'm against institutions. Right. Or institutions of authority. It's just about me and God or something like that. Um, with Aristotle, there's this recognition that no, like the formation of a state is natural and it's good, right? Because human beings, we are naturally um, social and political. And so we are ordered towards unity and community and family and so on and so forth. Um, and I think even Aristotle kind of models his form of government off of like fatherhood, right? Which is, you know, um, pretty epic. So um, uh, the idea is that you know, recognizing that, look, institutions of authority aren't bad and they're actually necessary and they can be good. And this is part of, you know, even what motivated Edmund Burke when he was writing on his reflections on the revolution in France, he was saying was the real tragedy with the whole French revolution. Uh, Cause you know, as the, as the French revolutionaries began just killing off people and trying to redefine themselves without the superstition of the past, without without the, uh, the 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 clinging of tradition upon them, right? What they ended up doing was they totally undid their foundation and detached themselves from reality and tried to create something new, right? And it's interesting because when you think about um, you know people like let's say Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine very much emphasized the primacy of human reason. And he even talked about how every generation has the right to recreate itself, has yeah. the right to redefine itself. Right. And this is a very popular idea in just liberal political philosophy. Whereas, you know, Burke had this idea that society is a contract between the dead, the living and the unborn. And so what you do now, it's not just about you. It's about honoring the legacy of your ancestors yeah. because one day you're going to want your legacy to be honored, right? So mm -hmm. apply the golden rule to your ancestors and yourself. Um, and then the unborn, right? Because mm -hmm. at one time you were unborn. At one time, you know, you were dependent upon the traditions of the past and your ancestors working to bring you to where you are now. Um, and there's a very like uh, Suarez. Have you ever read Suarez on natural law? Yeah, a little bit. When when he talks about marriage and the reason why a marriage can't be dissolved, he first goes into obviously like the uh, the various um, what what would it be called obligations that the husband and wife have to one another that wouldn't be able to dissolve the marriage. But he also talks about the fact that uh, this couple has an obligation to the community to not divorce because that would do great harm not only to themselves but to others because there really is no private sins. The sins that we have uh, will will really pass on to our children. The effects, that is, will mm -hmm. pass on to our children. And the sins of our ancestors have really affected us, as we can see now yeah. in the in the flaming hot garbage we've been left. But uh, continue. <laughs> that was just my brief aside. Yeah, but um, you know, so you know, kind of branching off of that, uh, this idea that um, you know that authorities are good, that institutions are necessary that they're part of ordering and making sense of this complex mess that we call reality. Right. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at things like, for instance, Sola Scriptura, you know, as a conservative, let me give you an example. Um, so, you know how, like as conservatives on the gun control debate, we say, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Right. And yeah. you'll have those like conservatives, you know, take out their cameras and put 
um, a video and have videos of like a gun just sitting on a table. And it's like, yeah. oh, when's the gun going to shoot? It's like, well, you think about if you think about it, like it's not like, you know, when you think about Sola Scriptura, sometimes when I hear Protestants talk about Sola Scriptura, it sounds as if they're saying like, yo, the Bible is like getting up and dictating the rules of the community. It's like, well, no, the Bible is this tradition that has been written down, handed to us from the apostles, you know, preserved by the tradition of the church fathers and so on and so forth, kept in the canon, obviously, you know, to keep it um, secure on what we're reading. And what happens is that, you know, churches are governed by people, right? And, you know, they're either governed well if the person respects the Bible and its words and, you know, sacred tradition, or it's governed poorly if they disregard those things, right? And so I reckon that what happens is, is that Sola Scriptura ends up kind of being used as a front for actually like, you know, this, uh, this emphasis on private interpretation, the primacy of human reason, like you have to use these like rational arguments to convince everybody, right, absolutely speaking or what have you. And so at this point, then there's really no room for tradition. There's no room even for a magisterium to definitively issue something. Because so long as you say like, oh, the individual can rationally disagree and that's it, then you don't have an authority except your own intellect, except your own reason. Right. And so, um, you know, part of the Aristotelian logic is that, well, no, it's actually rational to obey traditions. It's rational to obey institutions. And I'd even argue it's rational to obey the magisterium because it's empowered by God. And, you know, I've argued this from Scripture. And so I'm basically saying, like, hey, if you affirm the infallibility of Christ and the inerrancy of Scripture, then why don't you affirm the infallibility of the magisterium and its definitive judgments? Right. You know, I, I've used that argument. Um, but I mean, another another way in which like the Reformation led to secularism is uh, when you think about. Well, one is that obviously, you know, this this idea that traditions are just kind of these arbitrary things that are used to cling us down, right? And so we should free ourselves of tradition. Uh, the idea that, um, look, the, you know, ultimately what matters, I mean, and to use an example then, I mean, going back to Obergefell v. Hodges, right? Um, a lot of libertarians were coming out and saying, um, you know, why don't we just get the government out of marriage entirely, right? Um, because it's just a relationship between you and your significant other why should we have the state involved? Right. And it kind of reminds me in some ways of how people view like their churches and themselves. Right. So it's like it's my it's my relationship is about me and God. Right. And so why do I need this institution here? This institution's getting in the way or it's, you know, it's causing unnecessary headaches. Right. And then what that ends up doing is it ends up leading to this kind of, well, saying it's OK to splinter. It's OK to split. It's okay to divorce, basically, um, and go our, our separate ways, rather than striving towards an actual unity. And if I could just say this really quick, you know, some people will say, well, you know, all you Catholics are on about unity, right? But you don't have true unity in the Catholic Church or, or something like that. And then they're in like the ACNA or something. <laughs> they can't even agree on woman's ordination. Right. I mean, but, you know, I, I would say that unity has two components. And I apologize for using um, terminology from international politics, but, you know, there's hard power and there's soft power, right? So the hard power, well, so in order to have unity, you need both. So you have this hard power, which is like the ability for a community to universally settle an issue, 
you know, to have this jurisdictional authority that can say, this is what we believe. This is our stance, right? And either you're in or you're out based on if you accept this judgment or not, right? So, um, you know, I, we, I mean, to use an example in our own context, right? Like uh, if, if it was the case that we didn't have a universally accepted way to appoint the next president, and everybody could kind of say, oh, no, this random guy in Kansas is actually president, right, rather than, you know, the guy who actually won in the Electoral College. That would be chaos, right? There yeah. wouldn't be true unity there. But because we have a legislative system, because the institutions breathe life into the ideas and the values that we hold, right, it, the institutions kind of give them teeth and the ability to speak, right, um, then, you know, we could have hard power used to implement this is the ruling. But now you also need soft power, right? You want to encourage people to kind of of their own voluntary will just, you know, feel as if they can submit, to feel as if they can in good conscience accept a thing that you've given or a thing that you've said, right? Um, but the thing is, if you only have soft power and not hard power, right, then unity becomes impossible. Because then as you have to always be like ready to try and convince somebody else. Somebody else can always splinter and go away, right? And so unity just becomes a kind of vacuous idea. But with hard power, you can always say, this is the ruling. This is the authority that we've established, right? And so then the goal of soft power is to bring someone to accept hard power, right? I mean, and think about the, the idea of authority in general, right? I mean, an authority is an authority regardless of whether or not you agree with it or not. So, for example, like, you know, for you as a father, right, like your kid can dispute whatever you say all he wants. But at the end of the day, you are the father, right? You are the one taking care of him. Yeah, um, and so part yeah. of authority is being able to even overturn dissent to some extent. Yeah, well, uh, he's also like two feet two feet tall right now so i don't <laughs> think he could <laughs> right Just yeah yeah hard. okay so uh i had a i had a quick question i had a thought so um what what is because i'm sure you don't have conservatives bring this up i'm sure it's just your uh liberal friends but how would you respond to oh you're talking about this great western tradition swan but swan you're not even ethnically your ancestors don't even come from the west like what are you doing about this just uh taking the white man's game up and just following his traditions follow your own traditions man how how would how would you uh how would you consider uh that sort of rebuttal well you know it comes down to the question of what is the western tradition right mm. and so i mean if the western tradition is something particular to europe particular to north america I mean, then maybe they have a they have a plausible claim, right? But the tradition that I'm talking about is the Catholic Church, right? It's a universal religion, and um, its values and its teachings they're there on the natural law. You can find its teachings like on marriage across human societies and civilizations. This idea that you ought to obey the natural order very much in Taoism. Right. And so mm -hmm. actually, for me as an Asian person, I feel very comfortable in Catholicism, um, whereas when I looked at Protestantism, I recognized that a lot of things with Protestantism were very particular to the European Western context. Right. Yeah. And there were some things I couldn't relate to at all. Like, for instance, you know, in Asian culture, unity is a very big thing. Right. And having the same beliefs and having the same 
uh, authority that you're under, right? Or respecting authority, even if you disagree with it. <laughs> you know, like nowadays in the West, it's like you can just yell at your mom and tell her to go clean your room and just, you know, go play video games. Oh, I, I'm kidding. That's a bit uh, crass, but you get the idea. Yeah. So uh, I actually feel very much comfortable uh, being a conservative in the West if what we are conserving together is the Catholic tradition or at least, you know, with our Protestant brothers and sisters, um, Christianity. Yeah, I, I feel like the, uh, at least my thoughts about, about this is like, me particularly, my family is from like northern Germany. So if, if you really think about it for like about half of what we would consider the Western tradition, which goes all the way back to the, um, even the pre-Socratic philosophers, right. mm-hmm. for over half of the tradition, my my people were just a bunch of like <laughs> barbarians in Northern Europe <laughs> who are mostly Neanderthal. Like that, that's, <laughs> that those, those were, those were my people. So, so if you really think about it, it's a bit arbitrary and I, and I feel like it's a bit uh, modern to speak in these categories of race, like, like we really do. And, and I particularly think that the, the only reason we really identify it with Western is just the fact that, you, most of uh, most of the tradition of the I mean, most of the history of the Catholic Church, at least uh, since the split, uh, the Great Schism has been in the in Western Europe. Mm-hmm. So all the exponents of this tradition were in Western Europe, and it wasn't it wasn't anything that had to really do with uh, with racial composition or anything like that as much as the neo pagans would like it to be. It uh, it really only uh, it only has to do with uh, truth, which is a common commodity to to all of mankind. We're all, we all have that deposit of truth. Okay. And I had a second question. What was it? Did I write it down? Oh man. Oh, oh yeah. There, there it is. So Swan, I have a, I have another objection that, that I thought up. So how would you respond to one who says like, look, I've read, uh, I've read these, this Catholic social teaching, all this stuff. Look, Swan, they're against the death penalty. They are for giving people fair wages. They're against abusing <laughs> workers. They're 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 for uh, but what else can I think of? I don't know. For all these obviously liberal things. Oh yeah, they're for um, like Aquinas is for have stuff having uh, inherent and natural values, where uh, where the price isn't determined by uh, mere usefulness. Well, I mean, mere desire, Swan. These are some liberal things that you're putting forth. Like this, this is not conservatism, like my like my dad taught me. What what would what would you say to that, Swan? Uh, I would just, I would say okay, um, sure. You know, like uh, the the conservatism that I'm advocating, that even like like for instance, Sir Roger Scruton was advocating. Scruton was an environmentalist, right? But he was an environmentalist not because he wanted to increase state power. Um, he was willing to allow the state to have some more power um, to protect the environment, but it was on the condition that it would be under a patriotic purpose, right? So, yeah. you know, because you love your country and you love, let's say, the lush fields of Ireland or something like that, um, you don't want that to be destroyed by, let's say, um, you know, climate change or even just pollution that's here and now. Um, then, you know, that would be a way that you could justify that under a conservative policy, right? This idea that you love your country, you love its traditions, and you love simply even the natural law tradition of caring for humanity or even the commission given to Adam 
right? To take care of the earth and to be a good steward of it, right? So all these things can play a part. Um, and now, you, you know, you listed a lot of different examples, like, you know, a fair wage, like, ah, nobody wants a fair wage, right? <laughs> well, okay, so here's the interesting thing. Um, so conservatism is a lot more flexible in this area than I think people realize, right? So there, there are conservatives who, you know, like take Chesterton, who is a distribute, uh, believed in distributism, um, and other conservatives who would actually advocate for more state, uh, for more involvement of the state to some extent, um, granted other limitations are at play. So I think, um, I think Hayek was the one who said like, um, he would allow for a universal basic income if it also meant that we could remove all regulation <laughs> from the market, right? I mean, <laughs> so <deal. laughs> yeah, you have, you have, you know, these ways of balancing the things in question, but the reason why a lot of conservatives are favoring capitalism and free markets is because, um, I mean, these markets are proven ways of increasing wealth and human prosperity and live and, you know, human livelihoods. And so, you know, I think it was Roger Scruton in his book, The Uses of Pessimism. He talks about how basically the free market solved the collective action problem. Like, how do you get people to all cooperate together for each other's interests in spite of the fact that they have their own self-interests? And it's like, well, the market does a great job dealing with that problem. Now, there are questions, though, about the moral consequences of the market. Um, there are questions about the extent to which um, the markets kind of consolidate power and keep that power consolidated within a few elites such that um, you end up having a, a market system that isn't actually free for entrepreneurs and other people to come in, but it's actually just the same old five guys just repeating their usual kind of hand in the market, right? So um, I think those are, those are valid questions to keep in mind. And so, you know, as a conservative, I'm not totally opposed to government regulation on the market. Um, and those, those sorts of things. Right. But I'll just say here, um, I'll just say here that I think the government is, uh, or I should say your conservatism is flexible on this question. Yeah. I, when I, uh, first, first started reading, uh, Thomas on these sections and then also, uh, reading some of the, some of the encyclicals from, from Pope Leo the 13th and also, uh, the later, uh, integralist popes i i was quite shocked and i was like what are what are these liberal popes doing like <laughs> are you sure these aren't from pope francis i had to make sure i recheck the uh recheck the author and uh yeah it, it it's really interesting how especially in an american context conservative has taken a very different uh flavor than right. it actually does and, and oddly enough it's it's a liberal flavor that it's taken and then called the conservative flavor liberal. And it's mm -hmm. very confusing, which is, which is why I like, uh, like the label, uh, classical liberal for the libertarians and not bunching them up with, uh, the actual conservatives, which is, which is us. So I'd, I'd one last question and then I think we'll have time to get into it. We have like 10 minutes. So I think we'll have time to get into a few from the chat. So, uh, what do you think about integralism? <laughs> this is the this is the question that everybody wants to know now right um well gee that's like asking me do i want to get do i want to get hacked or hanged um well <laughs> so here's the thing like um i mean in some ways i am an integralist in the sense yeah. that i believe that the catholic church or at least catholic teaching 
ought to have a role in society, right? Mm -hmm. So the government should take a stance on moral issues and say, we are going to uphold the natural law tradition. And it's not the natural law tradition as articulated by John Locke. It's not the natural law tradition as articulated by Thomas Hobbes or, you know, by any other Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I'm talking about the natural law tradition of St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, Aquinas's natural law theory can't intersect with these other theories or come to its same conclusions without beginning from some of the false premises that they start from or the false metaphysics that they start from. Right now, um, you know, I've also thought about, you know, wouldn't it be great if the Catholic Church had like a Supreme Court function? Right. So, for instance, if a society passes a law that says, hey, you know, we, there's a natural right to abortion, let's say. And the Catholic Church is like, no, actually, we've definitively said this is what the contents of the natural law are. We strike down that bad law. Right. Then, I mean, it. I think there's a role for the church to be kind of the final protector of um, the natural law tradition of the society and its moral and social upkeep. Right. Uh, you know, I think the moment that we begin to kind of start separating church and state, then what ends up happening is that the logic of, for instance, you know, when you use a natural law argument or you're arguing on some type of grounds that like marriage is a union of one man, and one woman, people are just going to say, oh, that's a religious argument. Right. And I'm just trying to look for a secular one as if, you know, you have these two separate magisteria. Yeah. Uh, Rather, the tradition that the church, the, the arguments of the church and its reasoning, these are also based on universally knowable premises, you know, based on the natural law mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And so um, I think the church, especially since it has the charism of in, or it has the gift of infallibility. I mean, like, why wouldn't you want that institution helping you out a little bit in your society? Right. So, yeah. I mean, I, I like those aspects now. You know, I'm not for kidnapping, you know, Jewish children and baptizing them against their will or against. You're their not Scotist, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, you know, I don't want to go that far because even Aquinas talks about, I think, against, you know, baptizing yeah. children against their parents will mm -hmm. um, and not usurping the natural office of a parent. And I would even, you know, talk about protections for rel religious minorities in the yeah. predominantly Catholic society, right? So I'm open to all these things. I'm not this crazy guy who wants to, you know, go out and just, I don't know, uh, you know, persecute religious minorities. I, I, that's not what I'm about. So anyway, uh, I, I guess, you know, in theory, I am open to it. Um, I would like to see if it could work in practice, but you know, I think that's the best way of setting up a society. I think uh, one of these times I'll have to get uh, you on with uh, Byzantine Scotist and we can all have a discussion about this because I'd, I'd really like to hear your thoughts because I'm I'm a self-proclaimed integralist and and Byzantine Scotist also is. And we're, we're thinking about collabing on a little bit, some little bit of something about that here soon. But that's still mm -hmm. a little bit in the works. But I think that would be that'd be interesting because um, have you ever have you ever read uh, who is it? Uh, his last name's Pink. He, I can't remember his first name, but he, about um, Vatican II and then, um, and then religious liberty. He writes about how it's in continuity with the, uh, with the previous tradition. Uh, I don't know. I, I, the, the, the name Pink sounds a little familiar. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I wish Byzantine Scotus was still, he'd remember the guy's name. Thomas Pink. Thomas. Yeah. See, I knew, yeah, I knew he would remember it. Okay, and then we got like five minutes, so I think that's enough time for one more question. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, this is a good one. What conservative texts do you recommend we read? Oh, that's great. So, yeah, I mean, depends on like how far you want to go in the tradition, right? But I mean, you know, starting off with like Aristotle and politics, that's great. Aquinas' treatise on law um, and property, you know, I think that's really good. Um, even going into, um, let's see here, like Thomas Sowell's book, Intellectuals and Society, or even Basic Economics, um, his book, A Conflict of Visions, I think is probably one of the one of the most important books written in conservative thought, even though uh, Sowell identifies himself as a libertarian um, when it comes to the market. But in terms of his social policy, he is very much conservative. Um, and then even another really good book is um, Making Men Moral by Robert George. In that book, he defends perfectionism against liberalism. But he tries to find a way to mesh the good in liberalism with the good in, in perfectionism. And he comes up with a theory known as pluralistic perfectionism. Um, you know, and as I mentioned before, the great debate by Yaval Levin is a really good exegesis on Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine. Even if you read Edmund, Edmund Burke's work on the reflections on the revolution in France um, and maybe one uh, you know, a few other texts I can throw in there, too. Um, Sir Roger Scruton's books, like How to Be a Conservative, that's a good one. Um, I think actually The Uses of Pessimism is my more favorite book because um, it's very much dealing with the conservative, the cautious conservative attitude, but then he's giving rational arguments based in de decision theory why you should kind of tend towards um, caution when it comes to, new to innovations. Um, and those are just some books I'd recommend. Okay, that sounds sounds good. Another one I I thought of is uh, if you want like the really um, like autistically scholastic sort of like insane distinction with like proofs from from uh, all the like Baroque Thomist philosophers and stuff like that. Um, Henry Grenier in his um, uh, Cursus Philosophi Philosophiae. Um, yeah, I, you can just get it. In English, and it's just Thomistic philosophy, but that sounds kind of lame. Uh, it's volume three uh, on ethics. I mean, about half of it's on uh, on government because he goes over both individual uh, good and then also uh, political good or the good of the polis, common good. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I still haven't decided what to what to call the common good yet because common good has such a bad yeah. taste in our <laughs> mouth and like the the uh the good of the majority and stuff like that that is like such such a bad taste so i just call it political good but that's also like a little bit so i'm, I'm just gonna call it the good of the polis so people ask mm -hmm. me what the heck i mean by polis and then i can explain exactly what i mean okay but after that brief aside aj has a question um i don't think swan will have to worry about this but uh homeschooling <laughs> or catholic school for the kids uh for me i think um kind of undecided i mean most like I would say like 80% of Catholic schools, I would not want my kids in. You might as well just send your kids to public school at that point and, and, and save some. But uh, yeah, with, uh, with there's some like the, I know the ordinariate has set up, I think two. And then you'll have uh, more conservative parishes that actually are, are teaching the Catholic faith and making sure they keep pretty, keep things pretty tight. Um, I don't know. All I know is I don't, I don't really care about the mode of education. I kind of just care about the content. So like you'll get uh, C.S. Lewis talking about um, 
in, in one of his lectures before he died, he said that um, from the year 300 BC until now, men have been trained in one body of literature. And I am one of the last of those men. Like, and after, after we all, our generation dies out, you're not going to see much of us anymore. And you're not going to have classically trained men. And this is dying in our schools. So I, all I care about is the, the, the man, the, the manner of learning, which is just going to be uh, classical, make sure they know Greek and Latin and, and all that good stuff, making sure they're, they're, uh, they're reading the classics. That That's all I really, really care about when it comes to pedagogy. I don't care if it's more, because you can make up for the communal aspects of, of, uh, of a child's uh, growth with things like sports and, and stuff like that, but you cannot make up for them spending eight hours in those propaganda factories called public schools. So, uh, yeah, that's all I have. Uh, anything, uh, oh, what do you think of guilds real quick? Yeah. So I, I saw that the Byzantine SCOTUS asked for this, right. And so I don't really have very developed thoughts in this area. I mean, I do like associations of people coming together and, you know, um, advocating for their interests, right. I think this is a good thing. Um, I think it also helps and I think it could also assist in the project of subsidiarity if you have, a, let's say, under an authority, people coming together and making their requests known to that authority uh, and things like that. But um, I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure out maybe what's what further could be said or asked. But I think this is about all that I can think of at the moment. Um, so, yeah, if, if Byzantine Scotus has any further thoughts, that'd be pretty cool. I guess we should have a conversation now. Right. Between yeah. Yeah, I think that would be really good. So Byzantine Scotus, I'll I'll make a little group chat and we can come on and talk about all things political philosophy. I think that'd be really fun. Okay, and then quick, another one. What do you think about Molinism? It's cringe. <laughs> no, the reason why I'm laughing is not is not because it's a bad question, right? But it's because um my thoughts are, are very complex in this area, right? So for instance, um, you know, I, I very much like what St. Thomas has to say about predestination, right? And so, um, you know, th that's very good. Um, I think there is a place for middle knowledge in terms of like these cases like baptism of desire or, you know, um, you know, uh, when we talk about invincible ignorance, I think the concept of middle knowledge can be very helpful, right? Like if the person had known that the Catholic faith were true, would they have accepted it, right? Now, of course, these counterfactuals do get really complicated at some point because you can develop a counterfactual of a counterfactual, right? And so at least um, you know, the standard Thomistic account of predestination kind of deals with that. But um, yeah, I mean, so I think Molinism can be useful on the side, but I'm very much with Thomas. Yeah, I think I think the the actually barely Protestant and I are going to have a debate on this uh, here soon. We're still we're still planning some of the details because I'm I'm in my finals week in my semester, so it's I'm a little busy. But um, I think I think a very important uh, thing to raise here is that we need to take back um, counterfactuals. We need to take back. Uh, uh, future contingent propositions from the hands of the Molinists <laughs> because people, because they have for so long said, we're the only ones that can say, uh, say that, but the, uh, the tradition of at least some of the later Thomas and especially of the reformed Thomas in the, in, in Protestant schools of thought, they have said like, no, we, we agree with future contingent propositions. You guys are, are, are just messing them up by saying that these future uh, contingent propositions are separated from the decree of God. 
and that it's not preceded by the decree of God. That's the, it's your problem, not our problems. Okay. So sorry guys for all of your, you guys just bombarded me with questions, but I have to go. I'll be on settlers lament in about 30 seconds. Um, oh, any, shoot. okay. You want to, <laughs> do you want to uh, plug yourself uh, real quick about anything you're doing? Well, yeah, I mean, so my my Facebook and YouTube channels, Intellectual Conservatism, I'm going to be in Oklahoma next Friday uh, giving a talk. And so if any of you are in the area, I think you should know something about um, some of the, you know, the, you should have the diocese giving you emails or something like that. Um, man, I, there are two questions I want to answer here very quickly. Um, OK, what okay. do you think about the death penalty? Well, okay, so there's that one, right? And then there's the neoconservatism one. But let me just go to the death penalty one. So, oh, okay, okay, so we'll do neoconservatism. Um, you got three minutes. <laughs> three minutes? Okay, so, like, when it comes to neoconservatism, um, it really depends on what you mean. Typically, neoconservatism has an emphasis on, like, foreign policy and really trying to spread Western values to other nations and making it kind of a, a, an international project, right? Now, when it comes to that project, like um, I'm much more sensitive to kind of cultural differences and these sorts of things. I recognize universal values. Right. But then there is the important aspect of not setting someone up for failure by using only hard power to get them to accept some set of values. Right. So th those are my thoughts on neoconservatism. Um, you know, like th th there are a lot of neoconservatives that I like and agree with um, at times, but not always. And so. Uh, let's see. I'm, I'm very much a peace kind of person, you know. Oh, wait, not um, O'Connor. Okay. And then on the death penalty, and this will be my last one. Um, when it comes to the death penalty, um, I believe that it is morally permissible, right? Uh, based on the teachings of scripture, based on like arguments you can give from natural law. Um, but I do recognize, right, that it can be inappropriate given certain contexts, right? So, I mean, I mean, just, you know, take your pick and you can come up with some counterexamples. Right. But I think there are contexts in which the death penalty could be um, kind of, let's say, um, uh, rolled back. But one should never say that it's intrinsically immoral. I think it does, for instance, take a toll on the executioner. And so that those types of considerations should be taken in effect or even the toll it takes on a society to kind of like just be celebrating and wanting somebody to be dead. And that's like, Oh, we should probably chill on this particular thing. And that's all I'm going to say. Okay. So, uh, settlers, <laughs> settlers lament is, uh, <laughs> is, is getting on you. So thank you Swan for being here. Um, so everybody it is Lent. So do penance for the kingdom of God is 